tonight we are going to continue our series on the parables. And this is part two, and I see some people that I know weren't here last week. Um, so the good thing is this is one of the most familiar of all the parables. So you're getting part two of the prodigal son parable. Um, I'm going to argue tonight it really is about two lost sons. And in Luke chapter 15, there actually are three parables in a row that are all about lost things. That's important in understanding, um, especially part two of the parable we're going to do tonight. Um, what we'll do is we'll read the passage. I'll, I'll say one or two things um, by way of review from last week, and then we'll dig into uh, what we need to see about the older brother in particular, because that's what we're going to focus on tonight. All right? Is that good? So it's in Luke chapter 15. You may remember chapter 15, verse 1, gives the context for all three of these parables in Luke 15. And basically, there were some Pharisees that were grumbling and complaining that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. They don't like it. And so he tells three parables about lost things, culminating in this parable, really one of his most famous parables, in uh, verse 11 is where this one begins. So we'll pick up reading Luke chapter 15, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the interview. Everybody got a way to see the scripture? You're all good? Okay. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years... I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, 
You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together briefly. Lord, we do thank you for this really glorious parable. We pray, Lord, that you would, um, that you would find us wherever we're hiding, whether we've run off to a far country or whether we're hiding from you even within your own household, but yet our hearts are far from you. Lord, wherever we are, may you come find us and draw us near to you again, maybe for the first time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so most people know the part of the parable about the prodigal, about the younger brother who takes the father's money, um, his part of the inheritance, and leaves, right? And I, I guess if I want you to understand a couple important things about that by way of review, um, it was very insulting what he did to his father. When he asked for his part of the inheritance, what he was saying to his father is, Father, I wish you were dead, and I'm treating you as if you were dead. Nonetheless, the father gives him mercy and grace. Instead of saying, how dare you, he gives him the money. The kid liquidates his part of the estate, which was, again, not just an offensive thing to the father, but now made this offense public. Because now the whole village will know that he's taken his share of the inheritance and he's liquidated it. And then the kid leaves. The kid ends up becoming quite miserable. Often in the Bible, famines are God's way to wake people up um, to reality, to where they are, particularly if they're far from God. And so it is with this kid. Except he doesn't really come to repentance and to a longing to have the right kind of relationship with his dad just because he's miserable. There is a great verse in Romans, the, the, the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul says, the kindness and mercy of God is designed to lead to repentance. And I know a lot of people have grown up in churches where you never probably would have guessed that that kind of verse was in the Bible. Because what was designed to lead to repentance in that church was hellfire and brimstone. And kind of an image and picture of an angry father. And you better do everything you can to get back into his good graces. Okay, But that's not the picture we have here. The kid comes to his senses in himself and says he came to himself. That is not the same thing as coming to a full love of his father. Because if you look at his speech, he actually comes up with a plan whereby he can work off his debt and take care of himself. He plans to say, Father, let me be like one of your hired men. And the sad thing is, in the church, a lot of times, people who have left God's people and his church and have run far away, um, you know, proverbial prodigal kind of people, often feel like the best that they can hope for from God and from other Christians is for an opportunity to try to prove that they really want to do better. This is unfortunately the way a lot of people think. It's certainly the way the Pharisees were thinking. They're like, how dare you, Jesus, eat with these sinners and tax collectors? They need to get their life together before they're worthy to eat with us, God's people, and with you. But God and Jesus, they don't work that way. Um, what Jesus is teaching this parable is the prodigal has this plan to work his way 
off, uh, work the debt off, and to be able to provide for himself. But what he sees when he comes close to the house changes his speech and melts his heart. Because what he sees is the father running. And the father running would have been just an outrageous thing to do in this culture. Great men didn't run. They certainly didn't show their legs. And to run, a man would have to hike up his robe and run. You would never do that. And so the picture you have here is this son who deserves all the shame and guilt that the whole village is going to be pouring out on him. Because farmers in the Middle East live in the village. They don't live out on the farmland. So any kind of picture you have in your mind of the sun coming over the horizon, you know, in a nice beautiful field and there's a farmhouse up on the top of the hill, that's not the setting. The setting is a small village. And if you came from a small town or a small church, you know how brutal it can be, particularly when you sin against the whole kind of village and the whole town, bring shame upon it. That's what this kid has done. And the father deflects all of that shame that would be poured on him onto himself by doing something even more shameful than what the son had done in saying, Father, I wish you were dead. And when he does that, the son melts. And no longer is he saying, let me be one of your hired men. Right? So that's the first part. And then you get the older son. So the older son hears music and dancing, and he asks one of the servants, what's going on? What's going on? Now, to understand this parable you need to understand that the party is not for the younger brother. The party is for the father. We know that because culturally, that's who would have been the one celebrated. It's what the father says, come celebrate with me. I have found my son. But also, when you look at the first two parables in Luke chapter 15, in both of them, you have something that's lost, you have somebody who finds the thing that was lost, and then that person calls together their friends and celebrates the thing that they found. So all three parables are about something that's been found and a party to celebrate the one who has found the lost thing. So the, the party is for the Father's glory. That's why it's so offensive, maybe probably even more offensive what the second son does than what the first son did. The first son said, Father, I wish you were dead. The second son spits in his face. A party celebrating his father and something glorious that his father has achieved. The older son would have been the one who would have been expected to welcome everybody to be kind of the master of ceremonies to celebrate his father. Older sons have very distinct responsibilities in traditional society. And this son knows what those are. He's to celebrate his father and his father's good fortune in finding this son who was lost. But he doesn't care about that, does he? The older brother insults his father in public. In public. And his angry outburst exposes his heart attitude. He feels like he's been cheated. He feels like the father has not dealt with him fairly. And by refusing to join the party, here's what the older brother is saying. Father, you don't deserve a party. Now, before we just jump all over this kid, I'd submit to you that you felt like that. And I felt like that. 
See, it's easy to feel like that when God doesn't go along with your agenda. Father, you don't deserve a party. You don't even deserve the title of father. Notice he doesn't call his father father, which is another sign of disrespect. The father says son, even though the kid is not acting like a son at all. But the son, the older son, doesn't even address his father as father. Father, you don't deserve a party. You don't even deserve the name father because you haven't given me what I want and what I think I deserve. Like I say, it's easy to feel like that when God hasn't given you what you deserved. And that's key to understanding this parable. Notice that this parable ends without you knowing whether or not the older son goes into the party. And then remember why Jesus told this parable. He told this parable to some Pharisees who were upset that Jesus was welcoming and eating with sinners and tax collectors. And while when you first hear the story, you may think it's about a prodigal and isn't this this nice story where he gets welcomed home, in some respects, the original context is more focused on the older brother. And you might think, okay, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. If you're a religious person, if you're someone who's grown up in church or around Christian stuff, if you're somebody who considers yourself very serious about your faith, watch out. It's very easy for insiders, religious insiders, religious people, to feel like God owes them and to lose sight of his grace. And that's what is going on here. So how do you recognize the older brother? Or maybe for you tonight, how do you recognize older brother tendencies in you? And in me. There's a number of things in this parable that I think are, are pretty helpful. Um, first, what's interesting, the irony here. Look at verse 29. He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. Actually, in the Greek, it's stronger. It says, these many years I've slaved for you, which is pretty revealing. I've slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your command. You've never disobeyed his command. Like right now, you're publicly insulting him. All the while, you are saying that I've never disobeyed you. Now, older brothers sometimes lose perspective. They, they lose perspective. Um, he publicly insults his father, yet contends that he's never disobeyed his command. He's lost perspective because he's not thinking about obedience in terms of relationship. He's thinking of obedience in terms of rules. Of course, the irony of that is he's breaking a rule at least a cultural rule. But what he's really missing is it's about relationship. The, the Christian understanding of sin is not that it's a breaking of the rules, but a rupture of relationship. And if you don't understand that, you really will have a hard time understanding very much about Christianity. Because it's not ultimately about getting a new opportunity to keep the rules. It's really the gospel, the good news, what Christianity is all about is about a restoration of this relationship that was ruptured. But the son doesn't care about, the older son doesn't care about relationship. 
Hard obedience is what God wants. Hard obedience is what the father wants. He wants the older son's heart. And even though the older son is in the family, he didn't leave, he didn't run off, he didn't sort of flaunt his desire to live independently of his father. And yet, even though he's close, he's so far from the heart of his father. And you see that with these words. All these years I've been slaving for you. All these years. Notice, he's been keeping track. Older brothers keep track of the things they do for God because they feel like eventually there needs to be payback of some sort. Older brothers look at their good works as earning them blessings and making God their debtor. He's self-absorbed, right? When you think about this, you're like, wait a sec. All these years I've been slaving for you. Why? That's a good question to ask an older brother. Why are you slaving for you? Why do you do what you do? That's actually one of the most important questions you could ever learn to ask yourself or your friends. Why are you doing what you're doing? Most people just kind of do what they're doing without thinking much about it. Why is the older brother doing what he's doing? I've slaved for you so that. There's always a so that going along with this slaving. So that I might have a party with my friends. And even that's interesting, isn't it? Because he wants to have a party with his friends. He doesn't want to have a party with the father. He still doesn't want to be with the father. He just wants stuff. And you would have looked at the younger son and said, the kid just wants stuff. The kid just wanted to get away. But so does the older brother. He's just hiding it. He's just better at hiding it. But he really doesn't want to be with the father. He wants his own fattened calf or a goat so that he can have a party with his friends. But he doesn't want to be with his father either. Right? There's great irony here. He says, I've been slaving for you. But it's pretty obvious who's he been actually slaving for? For himself. Himself. He's been working for himself. Everything he's been doing, though it seems like it was for the Father, it really was about him and what he could get. And now when the Father doesn't get him what he thinks he deserves, the whole charade is unmasked. There's a great story, maybe some of you have heard, about Alexander the Great. He was in his... uh, holding forth court. Actually, no, I've got this wrong. It wasn't Alexander the Great. It was just, it's just an old preacher story, but it's a good story, I think, to illustrate this point. There's a king, a king in his court. And, you know, there's lots of people sitting around kind of listening to what's going on. People will come in with different requests and whatnot. And this guy comes in, this farmer, and he brings this horse to the king and offers it to him as a gift. And the king thanks him and grants him piece of land. Wasn't expected. And the farmer is delighted and thankful and humbly bows and, and leaves. So one of the kind of court hanger-on kind of people hears what's happening, sees what's happening, thinks, man, this guy got this plot of land for this horse. It's not a bad horse, but it's not a great horse. What if I give him, you know, a war horse, like a fine stallion? So the next day, he brings a fine stallion and gives it to the king. And the king says, thank you. And that's it. And the guy says, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Yesterday, the farmer brought you, you know, this mare, and you gave him a plot of land. I bring you this fine stallion, and you just say thank you. 
He goes, yeah, that's right. Because the farmer gave me a gift, but you gave the stallion to yourself. It, it is worth thinking why we do what we do. And if the religious stuff that we do isn't gratitude for what God has done, if it's an attempt to get God to do things for us, it's really not a gift to him. It's really not even service for him. There's a lot of religious activity that happens that really isn't about serving God. It's about trying to get him over a barrel. And sometimes you don't even know that's what's happening until disappointment comes in your life. And when you react the way you do with disappointment, that's a time to ask, wait a sec, why did I feel that God has treated me unfairly here? Maybe the things that I've been doing were really more about me than about him. Now, I hope you're going to see that the Father has grace for older brothers too. But it's worth examining your heart about why do you do what you do. Kid doesn't care about relationship with his father. Um, this little phrase in verse 27, where the servant says to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. That's the, the Hebrew idea of shalom. That means he didn't just get him back, he got him back and all is well and everything is back in its right place. Things are right with the family again. But the kid doesn't care. He wants to have a party with his friend. He doesn't care about the integrity of the family because that's not really what he is about. And then he slanders his brother. Look at verse 30. When he starts attacking his father, he says, when this son of yours, and that's pretty interesting, isn't it? This son of yours. He doesn't say, my brother. But this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, there's nothing in the story that says that he spent the money on prostitutes. doesn't say that in the first part of the parable. Most Christians or people that have heard this story think that the kid went off and spent the money on prostitutes. Why? Because that's what the older brother says. The parable actually doesn't say that. So the, the thing is that's interesting about this parable is most of us think of the younger brother the way the older brother wants you to think of him rather than the way the father thinks of him. And isn't this what we do? If the joy of what God has given you in the gospel is not filling your heart and you're feeling insecure or you're feeling like you haven't done enough for God, one of the strategies that we involve, get involved in is cutting other people down. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to some people called the Galatians. The Galatians had lost the joy of the gospel because they'd begun to believe that even though they had begun the relationship with God by grace, that it was up to them to work hard to keep God smiling at them. And the more that they began to live that way, the more they began to be bitter and insecure and self-conscious. And Paul says what begins to then happen in their community is they begin to bite and devour one another. If you're not 
enjoying the grace of the gospel on a regular basis, one of the things that will reveal that is the way you treat other people. And one of the things that you'll regularly feel like you have to do is make them worse rather than look at your own life and your own heart. So he does that. He slanders his brother. And, and, and the worst thing is he doesn't appreciate what he has. That's, that's like, you can hear the heartache in the father in verse 31. The father says to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Can you imagine the father saying that to you tonight? And the question is, what does that do to your heart? You say, yeah, I know, but I really want to get into grad school. Yeah, I know, but I really need a girlfriend. Does this matter? Son, daughter, you are always with me, the father says, and everything I have is yours. How does your heart answer? Does your heart say, yeah, but? That's a good sign that the older brother is lurking in there somewhere. Yeah, but the fact that he's with the father should be the most important thing about him and about his life. And this is while the son is publicly insulting his father. He's not saying, okay, you know, I'm done with you because you've insulted me. And the real tragedy is you had everything. And you just didn't care about it. That's not the way this parable reads. The father's saying, son, even now, even while you're insultingly publicly, in front of everybody, I'm here. I'm with you. Everything I have is yours. Come to the party. Come celebrate. See, this is a parable about the father enduring Humiliation for both of his sons. He doesn't ask prodigals to fix their life. And he doesn't ask older brothers to get their act together before he comes out to talk to them. He comes out to talk to him while he is insulting his father. Again, like I said, Romans 5, 8 last week. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what the gospel is all about. See, the older brother and the prodigal only seem different. They're actually two sides of the same coin. And you see that even the way the parable structured. Two parts, two sons. He's equating them. What Jesus is teaching us is that irreligion and religion are two different ways to be very far from the heart of the Father. They're two sides of the same coin. They're two ways to be your own savior. Patty Griffin has this great song where she talks about how she kind of had, had broken the rules at, of her Catholic school growing up. And um, she talks about uh, the chorus in this line is basically like, now who the hell is going to be your savior now? You've broken the rules. What are you going to do? But later on, as the song goes on, 
she basically decides that she's just going to make up her own rules and live the way she wants to live. And then the chorus changes, and now it's, who the hell says you need a Savior anyhow? There are two ways to avoid the Savior. One is to pretend that you don't need a Savior by saying, I'm not so bad. I'm keeping the rules. And the other way to avoid your need for a Savior is to say, I'm going to make my own rules. Religion, irreligion, two sides of the same coin, both ways of being very far from the heart of the Father. Flannery O'Connor said one time that people in the South avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. It's interesting. Not all of you are from the South, I know. But people in the South don't like to admit that they're sinners because then that means that they're needy. And I think that that's true for Northern people too. We just like to feel like we don't need anybody. We hate to be needy. But the gospel begins with realizing that you're needy. Whether you're in the family, whether you're hanging out with the family of God, or whether you're far from the family of God, you need to collapse on the Savior. Again, look at the parallels between the two sons. They're not really that different. They both want to return as servants or as slaves. The, the prodigal says, make me like one of your hired men. That's at least what he plans to do. The older son says, I've been slaving for you all these years. They each expect to get paid for their work. They each insult the father, the older son, maybe even more deeply. They each attempt to manipulate the father. They each want to use the inheritance for their own pleasure. And they each want to find a community apart from their father. They're really not that different. You know what's fascinating? I find a lot of students come to Belmont... And um, especially people that have been raised in the church, especially if they've been raised in a church where they didn't hear much about grace. A lot of times they've been kind of, you know, sort of obeying the Christian morality because of pressure that's been on them. Maybe their parents, maybe their peer group, maybe their church youth group, church leader. And they get to college and then they have the opportunity to live the way they want. And sometimes they try for a while to kind of keep up with what they had been living like back home. And then, maybe they kind of start to go off the rails and live like hellions of some sort. And that's when I get calls from parents sometimes. And it's always interesting, because usually what the parents think the kid needs or what their friends, roommates might think the kid needs is for somebody to give them a good kick in the pants. Actually, what they may need is to understand the heart of the Father that they've never understood. I know it seems counterintuitive, but some people that are very obviously running away from the way God wants them to live, like, they're not really changed their basic approach to God. They're just living it out in a different form. They, they, they really have never been close to the heart of the Father. They've been in the family of God, so to speak. They've been trying to keep up appearances. But the longer they've been trying to obey God to get something, the more they've been frustrated and disappointed with God. And finally, they get free of all that external pressure. And they're like, I've had enough. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And you might think that they've had a big shift. And a lot of people are like, I don't know what happened. They were this person, and now they're this person. They may not actually be that much different in their heart. 
And they may actually, maybe some of your friends that you think really just need to hear about the law and need to obey God, maybe they need to hear about the gospel because they've never really understood it. That's what the older brother needs. He needs to understand the character of the father, that the father is willing to risk humiliation to have his son back close to him again. Same as with the prodigal, right? The love of the father for both sons. But I want to show you something even amazing, more amazing. There's a true older brother in this parable. Well, he's not really in the parable, but he's conspicuous by his absence. See, the first two parables in Luke 15, in every one of them, there's something that's lost, and there's someone that seeks after it. Who's the seeker in this parable? The answer is there's no seeker. But there should have been a seeker. All, all the New Testament scholars that understand the cultural background of this parable is like the, the older brother would have been expected to go after his younger brother. It's what older brothers would have been expected to do. And remember what Jesus is saying about this parable. He's saying, you Pharisees are complaining that I eat with sinners and tax collectors, don't you understand? I have to. I'm the true older brother who leaves the 99 to go after the one that was lost. You're criticizing me, but I'm doing what the older brother should be doing. I'm doing what you Pharisees are complaining about. And at the same time, I'm trying to help you understand what the father is truly like. Because in your self-righteousness, you're so far from his heart. If you would go chase down some prodigals, you might understand a little bit more about the gospel and about the heart of your father. And maybe you'd quit criticizing me and see that I'm here for you too. But the parable ends open-ended. The prodigal comes. His uh, plan to work off his debt disappears when he basks in the love of the father. But what about the, what about the older brothers? What about the Pharisees? The parable ends open-ended because the question is posed to every one of us. What will you do about the father's party? Will you come? Or will you stay outside criticizing that it's not quite arranged the way you thought it should be. I'm not sure about that church. Some of the people that hang out at that church, there's a lot of really self-righteous people in that church. There's a lot of real hypocrites in that church. I don't know about that. We do it all the time, don't we? We criticize and complain rather than joining in the party. The party is for the Father in His glory. Do you care about the Father in His glory? If you don't, then look into His face tonight saying, come into the party. Whether you're a prodigal or whether you're an older brother, he wants you to come. He wants you to come. Gaze upon Jesus. You know, he's the older brother. The whole estate belongs to him, but he gave it up. He gave it up. He left his father's throne and came and suffered death, death on a cross. So that the party that we talked about at the very beginning, the call to worship, the party of Isaiah 25, might be able to be celebrated. He's both the honored guest at the feast and the one slain for the feast. He's the true older brother 
who seeks those which are lost. You know, uh, I posted this quote on the Belmont RUF group. I might uh, encourage you to go check it out. The heart of it is this, Richard Lovelace. Richard Lovelace is a uh, professor. He was actually Tim Keller's seminary professor um, and one of the biggest influences on him. He influenced a lot of other people as well. Um, any of you, some of you guys have went on Surge mission trips. Richard Lovelace was a big influence on Jack Miller and World Harvest and Surge. He basically was a church historian who tried to study the issue of revivals throughout church history and what were the common characteristics of revivals and how might the church be able to live in a continual state of life instead of like being, coming alive to the gospel and then kind of getting cold to it and coming alive. And, and what he basically said is the key is to understand justification by faith, the gospel, the good news that Jesus lived and died for sinners is what Christians need to hear over and over again. In so many churches, we, we tell people about justification, that you can be set free from your sins if you come to Jesus and throw yourself on his mercy, and then we start teaching you about discipleship, and there's very little gospel in the way a lot of churches talk about discipleship. They just tell you about all the things you need to do, and the longer you do it, the longer you're a Christian, the more you hate God. And this is what Richard Lovelace says, a Christian who doesn't really understand justification by faith is worse off psychologically than an unbeliever. Because the more you read the Bible, the more you go to church, the more you come to RUF, the more you hear about all the things Christians are supposed to do. But if you don't hear at the same time, Jesus did those things, and Jesus suffered the death that you deserve for not doing those things, then you just will become more burdened and more beat down. And I'll tell you, a lot of your friends and maybe people in this room are feeling very burdened and beat down because they've been Christians for a long time, but they've never really understood grace. And if that's where you are, man, let's talk about it. Let's find people that can pray. Let's, let's help you again and help me, pray for me, to come again and enjoy the goodness and the grace of the gospel. Jesus meant it when he said that the kingdom of God is like the best party that you could ever be part of. And um, for a lot of us, that's not what it feels like. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a broken world. But Jesus invites us to a great party. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing the doxology.